1: today's episode is presented by lloyd's banking group everyone deserves a safe place to call home that's why lloyd's banking group has championed the social
0: housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the uk
2: Hey everyone. Welcome back to another episode of EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column. I want to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so we can spread the word about this cool community. We hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. It's been a heavy week this week in Brussels. We've heard hundreds of allegations and stories. They've been lodged with publications, including Politico Europe, about harassment, assault, rape, all too common across the EU-Brussels bubble. So we're going to get right down into that discussion with a special group this week. And following that, we'll have our regular feature interview, and it's with the European Commission Vice President for Energy Union, Maros Sefcovic. So this is where we do the EU Confidential podcast a little bit differently this week. Uh, the issue of uh, sexual harassment, sexual violence uh, in and around the EU has become a major topic of discussion. Allegations um, haven't just been whispered. They've now been lodged with a number of different publications. It goes right up to alleged rapes and the inability of Institutions such as the European Parliament to effectively deal with those claims. So, with me today for a special uh, lengthy discussion about all of these issues is Joanna Maycock from the European Women's Lobby. Hi, Joanna. Good morning, Ryan. And our regular panelists, Alva Finn and Lena Rabarus.
3: Hello. Hello. Hi.
2: So, it's been a really um, tough week, and I wasn't one of the people had this happening to me in, in Brussels, um, but I've listened to uh, quite a number of very serious um, claims about uh, what uh, women and men say have happened to them in the EU Brussels bubble. Um, maybe we can kick start uh, by uh, hearing a bit from you, Joanna, about you know what is harassment? What does your organisation do around those issues?
0: I mean, it's fair to say I think a lot of people have been really shocked by the kind of levels and numbers of, of accusations that have come forward and it's not just in Brussels right it's everywhere um, for us as um, women's organizations campaigning across across the European Union um, we've spent decades trying to shine a light on sexual harassment and to make sure that there are laws and policies put in place um, to protect to protect um, women and it is mainly women who experience unwanted sexual attention and contact and violence in the workplace and also in public places associated with the workplace. Public transport is another place where we, we see a lot of sexual harassment. So for us it's not a surprise, but we're just hoping that this the kind of levels on the outpouring of testimony means that it's a wake-up call, that it's a kind of point of no return, actually, that things have to be done so, I suppose what is sexual harassment is what you're asking. And I think it's really important that the onus needs to be placed on institutions, and in Brussels, the, all the European institutions, to be really clear with all staff what constitutes uh, sexual harassment and harassment in the workplace, so that nobody can claim that they don't understand what it is or can try and use some kind of cultural relativism as an excuse for what is effectively illegal behaviour
2: absolutely illegal Mm. behavior since Mm. 2002 in fact um alva lena um what what are your um experiences takes impressions about how this plays out in brussels you know is there something specific to brussels as a city or is this you know a politics thing in general is it a men thing What, what 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 is your view
3: I wouldn't say it's just a men thing, but it's mostly a men thing. I was looking up the kind of EU, OSHA, and Eurofound uh, stats and it's much more likely, up to five times more likely, depending on which industry you're working in for women to to report this and and experience it. Uh, It's even more likely if you're kind of doing this kind of customer or client based stuff, because then you're in a position, um, I suppose there's a power asymmetry there. Um, and that is what we see in and around the institutions. There are so many of these kind of consultancies, agencies working in and around politicians, people in power. And I think that's why Brussels is is, uh, is a kind of red zone. But I've worked in other places other than Brussels in a kind of political scene, in the diplomatic scene. And this ha- exact same stuff happens. You know, you have um, these overlaps of your personal and private life. Uh, there's a lot of drinking involved, and... Um, We've heard a lot of stories about things like this happening more in Strasbourg, for example, where people are expected to go out on dinners, um, drinking a lot. And uh, is
2: it this away from home sort of culture where you think you can do things you normally wouldn't do when your your loved one or your regular colleagues would be there watching you?
3: I think so. But I also think that in relation to the parliament, the parliament is an away from home uh, political arena uh, where people are sometimes sent by their political parties because they're doing inappropriate things at home, and then they get sent to to, to Brussels, um, where their wives or or their husbands, I suppose, might not be here watching what they're doing. Um, so yeah, I think it creates a culture of uh, oh, we're all out there doing this, you know, European thing away from home, uh, and I think that is why Brussels is it's particularly insidious here.
1: Well, I do think there are two d- uh, differences here. Being away from home and uh, going to parties and drinks and uh, being interested in a man or a woman. I mean, this happens everywhere. The thing is that uh, justifying that it's okay during the working Time uh, during uh, in your workplace to go and harass your uh, female colleague, or to put her in a, a compromised situation, or to send one of your um, consultants just because uh, she's good and she's good looking to go and uh, lobby an MEP or get an event done. And remember, we received once uh, the sort of, of a problem. There is, I believe, uh, the lack of explaining what's harassment. Um, um, uh, as Joanna just said, uh, you've been working with with institutions. Uh, where you've been trying for decades now to. to Shed light on that, but still, is there enforcement? Is there law? Uh, are there internal campaigns? Uh, the MEPs apparently they they have the, communicated. There's a manual, but it's for the MEPs, not for the assistants, not for the staffers. <laughs> and don't forget, they are extremely protected. The MEPs uh, they have immunity. Police cannot get in the institutions, cannot get in the parliament. and if they want to, a lady to raise her voice, first, she will be the one um, in the highlight, she will be the one losing her job. She will be the one have to prove that, yes, there has been a harassment, and she will be under the mercy of uh, uh, wavering the immunity uh, on the MEP. Uh, so it is a, an environment extremely uh, healthy uh, to harass women there is there is no protection
2: now joanna you've um talked about the the failures of the reporting system, the lack of infrastructure. you you said every time you go and meet an EU official, you talk about that. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what a good reporting infrastructure would look like and to give a little bit more context to listeners um, on on top of what Lena was saying. For example, if you were to say that you have been assaulted, even raped um, by a member of parliament inside the parliament building, you can't even be sure that the police would be able to come to the crime scene because you have to ask the office of the president to let them into the building. Um, the police then wouldn't necessarily even be able to do an investigation if you went down to the police station with your medical report and so on uh, because uh, for to force the MEP to answer questions, um, they can just refuse it until their own colleagues lift um, their immunity. And then you are kind of like starred for life as the person making the complaint on your HR file. So even if that person were convicted in a court, most criminals lose that criminal record at some point, unless it's a really serious crime. But you, as the victim in the EU system, will you 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 become more targeted?
0: It's absolutely true. And so the negative consequences of being a victim of sexual harassment, sexual violence, are far greater. And the negative consequences on a perpetrator, which is absolutely the opposite of how it needs to be. And you've described very well the particular circumstances in the Parliament. But what it speaks to is a culture and and an environment which protects uh, and exonerates male uh, violence and inappropriate sexual behaviour, illegal sexual behaviour in the workplace, which is not unique to to the European Parliament, unfortunately. So we need to have systems which put the onus on believing and supporting people who come forward with allegations, um, and that take seriously the consequences for perpetrators. Otherwise, people will not feel safe to come forward and will feel, as you said, quite rightly, that it will be them who will experience the consequences for the rest of their, their career. And the reason I've raised it several times with all the institutions is that all the European institutions, and I I mean all of those in Brussels, the Committee of the Regions, the Economic and Social Committee, the European Commission, all the agencies across Europe and the delegations... Um, is that they have a problem with having enough women in leadership positions. A massive problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they come and ask me for advice about what they can do and what the policies and practices are to ensure that they can promote and bring more women forward because they're all recruiting the same number of women. Um, and one of the issues is making sure that people, that women, feel protected and safe and believed in the environment. Because this kind of sexual harassment is a is a sort of structural, massive structural issue. More than fifty percent of women in Europe experience sexual harassment at work, according to the, um, the survey by the Fundamental Rights Agency. And for us, it's really a way to humiliate to control and to subordinate women at work. And so how can we expect women to continue to flourish and succeed in environments that don't support and protect them? And
2: we had one one of the cases that I reported about on the Politico website um, Wednesday morning. Um, so I spoke to one of the alleged rape victims from the parliament, and she said that even the people that helped her in the system, and there were people who, in, at least in their minds, were trying to help, and I'm not at liberty to specify who they were, but they were senior people inside the building... Um, they specifically encouraged her not to go to the police with her story. So she's sort of stuck in a complete bind where eventually, essentially she had to hand over control of the situation and hope that in this sort of extrajudicial system, so where there's no like publicity, where there's no like outside institution guaranteeing you a due process, that she just had to hope that these other people in the system would figure it out. And then the person who was the alleged attacker... Did eventually do something that indicated he was a problem and he was he was forced to leave his job as a result of that um and hopefully we'll be able to report more of those details that i know later on and a year on she says she's received no support inside the system and it and it was heartbreaking listening to it
1: you know this is this is not the way we should deal with that. A year she was suffering by herself, uh, a year of um, self-doubting, I'm sure, a year of being uh, absolutely afraid from all the environment around you. But as well, there is a lot of responsibility on women here. Uh, don't accept it. Uh, speak up and, and uh, try to challenge. I always say try to challenge the, the, the culture you're, you're, you're being surrounded with. And uh, b- some one one of us has to step up and say okay i'm going to uh, um, take this step and i'm going to uh, be the the example so we can stop it and and we can let others know that if you go through this way there are consequences and there will be some uh, um, consequences on the men let's say on on the thing yeah I have
3: actually reported a sexual crime that I experienced in the airport here in Brussels. I won't describe exactly what happened because it's a bit disgusting for this time in the morning, but it wasn't a violent sexual crime. But basically, yeah, um, I went to the airport and someone did something in front of me in the airport. The airport in Brussels should be one of the most secure places in the entire country. I went and reported that crime. They found the person who it was. And then they told me that they were not going to press charges against him, even though they knew it was him. He was living in the airport, this man. And then they told me, we're very worried that he will escalate his his, um, behavior. So what we're going to do is tell him that you've reported it. And I just thought to myself, you're going to tell this man that I've reported it, but then not prosecute him. So, yeah, I am worried as well about and how and these he'll things are... And will be there next are. time we come
2: back to the airport.
3: Yeah, exactly. I was like, he's living in the airport? That, like, terrified me. And thank God it wasn't, like, a violent crime or anything like that. But it did... I was on my way somewhere. He obviously picked me because I was on my way somewhere very early in the morning. I couldn't find anybody to report it to in, the, in that morning, even though there's a police station in Brussels Airport. So I do have sympathy for people who would think you know, is it going to be better for you to report this when it's probably going to be in the news and nothing might ever happen to this guy? You know, a rape case, I think, is very, very serious. So anybody who said you shouldn't report this, I would wonder about that. But because I've experienced this myself, you know, the kind of lack or I mean, this guy got away with it with total impunity, even though they were worried he was going to do something it's else. It's a
2: minimization of the incident. And that is an Absolutely a pattern in the stories we've heard. 130 people came forward with their stories and a lot of them are even doubting, oh, I'm not even sure if this is serious enough to tell you because they've been allowed to believe that it really wasn't that bad what happened to them.
0: Yeah, I wanted to say to Alva that you say it wasn't a violent what happened. I don't know what it was that happened but we talk about violence against women not only as things that are physically violent towards somebody, but also emotionally um, or controlling. And it was obviously a violent act because it affected you and it continues to affect you right to this day. So even we as women, as victims and survivors often minimize what's happening to us because it's so normalized in our society. It's something that all women uh, experience in some form or other, whether it's on public transport, in public places, or in the workplace, so I think we have to also think about how we, we change the conversation and, and this kind of discussion that we're having here is really important to, to change the conversation, to put the onus really on the perpetrators and on the culture that protects them, be that the, the judiciary, the police, or the employers and in the, in the institutions that we, that we work in.
2: And one of the other women I was speaking to, and I hope to be able to report her full story in the coming days, um, she was telling me about an incident that, you know, it's, it's uh, not on the extreme end of the spectrum. Um, but essentially the effects were, oh, yeah, and then I told the story afterwards, the day after, uh, to my work colleagues. And they kind of just laughed it off and joked about, oh, yeah, he was really drunk last night and that it wasn't really a thing. And then I found myself selling her. I was like, yeah, that's what happened to me. And then I was like, oh, my God, I, I have a Me Too story. And I'm not going to tell this now to take the focus off women where, who are the majority of the stories. But I was like, wow, how insidious is this that... Basically, I essentially buried something that happened to me 15 years ago. And when I think about it, like, it was actually assault. It wasn't just harassment. Like, it was, you know, it, was, it wasn't violent in the sense of injuries, but it was violently done in a very public place. And some of my friends actually witnessed part of it. And then I was made to feel like it didn't really happen the next day. And it clearly did happen because I fled the scene and someone else heard the story afterwards. and um, And then this person went on to have a really senior political job later on and is still friends with a lot of my friends and I don't even I'm not even sure he remembers that it happened basically um and I'm not sure that it's worth raising now but then like the fact that I even have all those questions in my mind I'm like oh wow like this is really messed up in some deep down way
3: but I think that's another point that it's well the larger term for all of this is sexual and gender-based violence and gay men are also much more likely than for example straight men to experience sexual gender-based violence um so i it is it it definitely happens more to women but it also happens more to gay men for example than it would uh, because we are sometimes seen to be in positions that are yeah, a power asymmetry, again, a lot of this, uh, and back to what Joanna said, it's about control. It's not just about, you know, you see something you wanted. It. It's also about debasing other people. It's about, you know, exerting your power and control over other people. And you have to wonder what is what exactly is wrong with a person who would do that to someone else, just to to exert this power and control over them.
2: It's not like people are incapable of human decency or other good things in their lives, but in parallel to that, they perpetrate these crimes and these incidents.
0: I really want to denutralise the perpetrator term because it is, we're talking about men and okay. male violence, predominantly against women, but um, it's extremely rare for this sort of violence to be perpetrated by women. So it's again, it's about a culture of toxic masculinity that's, that's been allowed to grow and, and, and um, take hold across our societies. And I think now I'm really excited because I feel like we're reaching a tipping point that people are the sheer numbers of testimony that's coming that's coming forward, the shock I think at uh, Donald Trump's election, who's uh, actually on tape admitting his own sexual violence and crimes, um, I think has just kind of brought forth a, an avalanche that's that's too that's, that's too great now to ignore. I hope now that we've reached a point where we have to say it's zero tolerance to this kind of behaviour, um, and that all measures that can be taken, like in Brussels, across the institutions and the private sector. Uh, to weed out the perpetrators and to address the culture of uh, impunity really for the, for the perpetrators uh, has, to, has to happen and I think women have to feel safe at work and all people should feel safe at work you know, if we want women to be at the centre of, of, of defining the future of Europe and well, we, we need all the hands on deck for that at the moment we need, you know, if Juncker wants to achieve his 40% targets of women in leadership in the commission then we have, we have to ad- make sure that women feel safe to, to be at work and to speak out of work as well
1: and I do really hope, Joanna, that the women, when they are on leadership position, they wouldn't uh, freak out and uh, just act like a man and they make it a hush-hush culture. So we really as well uh, don't get afraid because we want just to keep uh, ourselves in, in with a title. I did see a few articles written by
3: women in the news after the Harvey Weinstein thing saying, you know, there's going to be a backlash about this. Like what's going to happen in the workplace now? Men will be scared to ask women to come uh, and, and go to meetings alone with them and this kind of thing. I mean, that really shocked me. I was thinking in my head, how could you possibly write that? That is why on earth would anybody be scared uh, to, to talk to someone in a work context, all you have to do is not sexually harass them. I mean, it's a very low bar. It's not complicated. Yeah, We have a
2: scenario now where MEPs literally, like in a public event last week, I've had this reported from several people, uh, so in a room of 150 people and there weren't enough chairs. And so the the convening MEP was like, oh, well, we can fix the space problem. The women can just sit on the men's laps. Oh, God. And they just, like, randomly say that in the middle of the Harvey Weinstein scandal in public. And you're like, if that's what's happening in a massive room full of people, what on earth is happening behind closed doors? And there are... So by the time you hear this, there will have been a debate in the European Parliament about these issues. Um, So we can't predict what is going to be said in that debate. But... I certainly hope there will be some more um, accountability and we will be happy to hear from other voices at the European Parliament, including the official voices defending the systems they have in place in future episodes. Um, Because one thing that really stands out to me is that uh, leaders of political parties have come out and said, in Gianni Patella's case with the socialists, we have these internal procedures in place. Well, we're going to put that to scrutiny at Politico for sure. The Greens say they have an internal ombudsman, but the one MEP who's been named so far in the series of allegations is the former Green MEP. So I wonder what happened in that case, how the ombudsman system worked. And Antonio Tiani himself from the European People's Party said that there had been no formal complaints of harassment. But we created a confidential form online and it didn't take a lot of pushing for 130 people to come forward. 30 of those allegations specifically related to the parliament. We know four people formally complained, like they've gone into detail with the stories for us. Parliament spokesperson herself said, yes, there have been cases of harassment and assault and that there's been punishment for them. And all that happened within 48 hours of the parliament president saying, no, no, nothing to see here. So I don't know whether that is different parts of the parliament system not talking to each other, someone or some people lying within that system, but it indicates a dysfunctional and broken system. So, Joanna, do we need a code of conduct for MEPs and other officials here to make it crystal clear what is and
0: isn't OK? Absolutely, and we would, we would say a code of conduct across all the institutions would be important, so it's clear and it's well understood. That should set out clearly what is prohibited behaviour, what is unacceptable behaviour, and that includes sexist language as well as sexual harassment, so sexist language and behaviour. Uh, behaviour within and of, towards staff, but also towards clients and stakeholders, we need to make sure that those codes of conduct outline what are the mechanisms to support people coming forward with allegations. So what are the actual steps that a victim should take to seek justice, but also to seek support? Basically, they should be very clear that this is a zero tolerance kind of campaign. Now, you can have campaigns, and I think in the European Parliament, they're very proud of the posters that they have all over the place about sexual harassment. But we're talking about regular compulsory training for all staff at all levels, including the president, including really at all levels.
2: So basically you can't walk through that door and take a job or be an MEP unless you've been through some training that makes it 100% clear.
0: Yeah, and it can't. that can't even just be one-off. It has to be regular. So it has to be repeated every year, every couple of years to make sure that it's absolutely crystal clear. That should be for all staff, we think there should also be specific women-only training uh, opportunities and spaces so that, that, that women feel safer to perhaps talk about the experiences they've had, such as those that Ryan's talked about or those have come forward here, that people aren't quite sure whether or not it's inappropriate sexist behaviour. I think women are more likely to talk about that in women-only spaces. And we think there should also be specific measures to target women from minority groups who are even more likely to experience harassment.
2: Now it's time to hear from European Commission Vice President Maros Sefcovic. He's the Vice President for the Energy Union, and I caught up with him in his office a couple of weeks ago. We've pulled it out of the closet because we've been so overwhelmed with all of the sexual harassment and assault stories this week that we got a bit behind making this episode of the podcast. But we checked, and luckily, all of the information is still relevant, and so we hope you enjoy this conversation. So... Vice President Sefkovic, welcome to EU Confidential. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. A pleasure. <laughs> um, let's get to know you a little bit first. Um, I'm interested because you've done just about everything in politics, in diplomacy, and civil service. And the thing that really jumped out at me on your CV was that you had been the Slovak ambassador to both Zimbabwe and Israel. Um, they can
4: be two pretty intense countries. Uh, how crazy were those experiences? Yeah, in, in Zimbabwe it was actually my my first posting, so I was not there as as ambassador, but uh, I had the duties what usually the uh, youngest diplomat uh, has to do, meaning everything from the consular work to deputizing for the ambassador. And I was there just in the first years of uh, Robert Mugabe, so it was still the country which was functioning very well before he really before went off really. Anything. I mean, they uh, they really have uh, uh, transformed the country in uh, in the shape uh, as it is right now, which uh, has nothing to do with, uh, I would say, how I remember it, uh, unfortunately. And, and Israel, yes, as you say, it was a pretty intense country. I had two such a strong emotions. The first one, when we all been uh, welcoming the Ehudbarah coming from the back camp David and... All of us been hoping that these Clinton parameters would do it, that we will see the peace. And I remember how all my colleagues been running around the Jerusalem looking for the uh, for the land for the future, future embassies. And then, of course, uh, the subsequent uh, intifada, all the security precautions uh, we had to, to undertake. My son was born there at that time, oh, wow. so in military military hospital. So we have a lasting lasting souvenir, as I say, from from Israel. But uh, one of the consequences was that uh, uh, we love both countries a lot, uh, but after we came back from Israel, so when we see some uh, bag somewhere in the corner or some uh, suspicious person, we immediately been agitated, and it took us something like half a year to realise that uh, we are not in such a stressful environment anymore. And then now,
2: like if we fast forward to your time as a commissioner and a vice president at the European Commission, I think you're the equal longest serving commissioner now, you and Cecilia Malmstrom, and, and you've been up there with the vice president title as well. Is there, given everything you've learned over the last nine years, you know, what, what's one thing you know today that you
4: wish you knew I would really appreciate it to know that uh, you have to be really patient. You have to work on different levels because, uh, since the idea until it's really approved in the college, and then you see there's a valid legislation. It's very very long way. So if you think that you can just change the things by the uh, I would say click of the mouse or by just uh, saying something very um, uh, very innovative, it's 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 not working either. So I I realize that uh, to get. Um, the message to be well taken by your colleagues or by, uh, I would say, the, the Brussels and European environment. You have to have very good arguments. You have to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and convince your your peers, and uh, in the end, in, it, it works. What I think it's uh, very uh, important about the EU is that they are very consensual institutions. Sometimes it's forget it's uh, forgotten. But it's very important uh, that we really try, I mean, in, in all circumstances under the last possible moment, to, to find the consensus. Therefore, sometimes it takes more time. Therefore, sometimes it doesn't look like we are super action-packed. But that consensus building is, is, is very important. And, and when we do not follow it, then usually it brings uh, a lot of tensions and, and, and the problems. And therefore, you have to be like... Uh, prepared mentally also for for this fact that this is rather complicated and demanding process. Well, in that sense, the EU being slow is also
2: its strength because that is the external criticism a lot of the time, that the EU only gets its act together at the last minute, that things take years to happen. But I guess you're saying that because it took years to happen, it's built in a more uh, sturdy way, that it's not going to be
4: knocked over in the political hurricane. Yeah, I think it's it's one aspect to look at it. But then again, I mean, when I looked at uh, how long does it take to, uh, to adopt the legislation, for example, in the United States or uh, even in some of our uh, EU, EU member states, it also takes time. So I think that if we are really uh, uh, working in... Um, democracy, and here we have to really take into account uh, what was going on in 28, uh, uh, very soon it will be 27 parliaments, so you really have to have permanent eye on where you have an election campaign, what is the position of the national parliamentarians. It's such a permanent consensus building, and it takes time, and I think it requires uh, and that would be probably the difference between now and how we started several years ago. Much more presence of the commissioners in the Member States. Mm-hmm. The people want to talk to you. I mean, not only the government representatives, but parliamentarians, and very often the, the, the citizens, they, they they want to know who are these guys in Brussels and you know what they can what they could do for me, how is it relevant for my city, for me personally. And it's it's really new because people just, just they just want to put their hands on you, they want to ask you and they want to tell you, you know, I believe this, this or something else. Should be done differently in yeah. Brussels.
2: The trust seems to come from showing up now, not just from people being clever in a building in Brussels. But let's get a bit into the topics yeah. that you actually tackle. So you're in charge of the EU Energy Union. Tell us a little bit about what that is. It kind of implies uh, a single market for energy. And that is one of the dirty secrets of the EU, is people kind of take as a article of faith that mm. the single market just exists and it's there. But in reality, it's still being built in a lot of places, including in energy. Um, so tell us a bit about that. Mm-hmm. And also, apart
4: from the single market, beyond the single market, what are the elements of the energy? Yeah, union? I think that uh, you, you're absolutely correct. It's a little paradox that we started as a coal and steel community. So the energy was really at the birth of the of the European Union. And until today, we cannot say that we have completed uh, the internal energy market uh, in the EU. So we still have... Uh, a lot of obstacles uh, which prevent us from uh, trading the electricity or the gas or uh, other energies. And therefore, I, I, I always repeat that we need to upgrade our software and improve our hardware because, I mean, we need to have better rules, which would make it uh, much more transparent and easier to trade uh, with energies. I really would like to see that you have a free flow of energies as we have free flow of goods or mm-hmm. services of the capital. And we have to invest a lot uh, in the infrastructure that we, if we have uh, uh, cheap and clean electricity coming from the north, that it should have really unhindered access where it is needed within Central Europe or in Southern Europe. And technologically, it's possible But again, you have different regulatory environments. You have a lack of interconnections and all this needs to be improved. But to be quite honest, I think that why the leaders in the end uh, endorsed uh, the energy union concept was not only because of the internal energy market. There have been a few other very important uh, elements. The the first one for many leaders, especially from Central and Eastern Europe, was energy security. So we're talking...
2: Russia, not just Russia, but making sure you don't rely on Russian gas or one
4: other country. Or, or I would say making sure that uh, the situation, as we have it in two thousand nine, in many of our uh, EU member states, will, will not repeat itself because it was quite dramatic. I mean, the governments had to take the decisions. Okay, it's the last remaining parts of energy. Let's uh, let's ship it to the households and the hospitals, and, and 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 the whole industry was shut down. I mean, it was. Uh, and it was in the middle of the winter, so it was pretty, pretty dramatic. Then, of course, uh, if you have a dominant uh, position and if the market is not working properly, then you tend to pay more for your supplies and you not always get the, the, the best conditions. And that was one of the top priorities uh, for many leaders, which we are really uh, changing by the, the different parts of the legislation. And then the second, I would say, very important imperative uh, in the energy uh, union Uh, approach was that how to marry better our climate policy with our competitiveness with our industrial policy how we can get uh, on board more research and innovation and to avoid that I would say scattered approach a little bit money Mm -hmm. for too many projects uh, uh, which of course are always very useful but you didn't have the comprehensive and coherent story behind Mm -hmm. it so now I think we we are managing to, to put our act together. I'm working with uh, 14 commissioners in my project team, so it means it's a 14. lot of coffee. 14. Wow, okay. Because I mean, it's from <laughs> Cecilia Malmstrom in energy trade uh, down to the Corina Cretu for using cohesion money for the build-up of infrastructure, Carmen Uvella on environment, of course with, with Miguel we have uh, daily contacts for, mm. for climate and energy, but uh, uh, Federica Mogherini if it comes to energy mm-hmm. security. So I can really uh, name uh, all of the yeah. colleagues who are working. But, and that, that's why you have to be a vice president, isn't it? Because if you
2: don't have a coordinating function, those 14 people are going to you know, they all have their pet project for energy or climate, but they're not really going to be efficient in how they do it.
4: Therefore, I think it was very much also appreciated by the colleague that we changed a little bit uh, the, the way how we uh, tackle things from the beginning, because very often, I mean, I remember how it was in the, in the, in the past, uh, also in the previous commissions, that more or less there wasn't political idea. You get the initial proposals from the services, And then, I would say, last stages, the commissioners got involved, tried to tweak it here and there, and then adopted uh, one week something for industry, second week something for environment. And then, of course, we saw it was not always 100% compatible. So now now it's different. We have so-called project teams at the beginning, where we really debated sometimes for hours what we want to see and how we want to make sure that this is coherent that all commissioners can have a buy in that mm-hmm. and uh, to really agree the the political priorities you would like to see in the proposals and and then get its services uh, uh, as, as instructions they work on it and then of course we have another meetings actually to get it mm-hmm. done so the political steer is right from the beginning yep. and i think it's much, much more better. hands-on yeah. the commissioners are really involved
2: and then you have to take it local as well. You've been doing a tour where you go around to different EU uh, member countries. Uh, is, it, is that talking to parliaments? Is it talking to the companies, or are you, are you actually going into town halls and meeting ordinary citizens
4: who use energy every day? I, you would be surprised, but all of that—it <laughs> <laughs> very much also depends. Uh, what is I would say the the preference uh, uh, in in the concrete cities. But uh, so it's I'm in the middle of my uh, of my second tour. The first one was very much. Uh, focused on to explain what the energy union means what it could bring to the concrete countries and more or less to canvas for the support for the project from the government from the parliamentarians and the the civil society Um, and we had a lot of of these town hall meetings and and, and, uh, you could see that uh, the the Europeans are very much like the the first question, you get energy prices, they are high, you want to pay less. Second, uh, of course, energy security, environment, air pollution. So I would say that the problems which are the same for for everyone, of course, it has usual, I would say, local um, specialities, like in Baltic countries that Mm -hmm. are very much focused on how they can synchronize with the European uh, uh, electricity system. For Central Europeans, Is energy securities. For Nordics, are we ambitious enough with our mm-hmm. renewables and uh, uh, energy efficiency policy? But otherwise, the, the seams are pretty the same. And uh, this second energy union tour, I'm really uh, working very hard to convince uh, the governments about these national energy and climate plans, because I really see it as an as a invitation to the investors to come. Just show me what your strategy is. will come, will invest, will help you with this modernization of your economy, with the energy transition. And which needs all these companies to scale up and uh, to really not only to use it in Europe, but I believe that it could be um, uh, number one export article for Europe. Clean tech, green tech, and all that integration we can do with the renewables and our traditional energy systems. And those national plans, that's really where the Paris
2: Climate Agreement gets real, isn't it? I mean, it's nice words, it's the right first step if you want to tackle climate change to have that Paris Agreement. But if you're really going to make it work, you, you need those economic incentives and some kind of national structure to pull in those investors.
4: Yeah, you're absolutely right, because I, I receive a lot of uh, investors, I had here at the financial group the other day, telling you I'm controlling 13 trillion assets, which for somebody from Slovakia is an enormous uh, amount of money. And they're telling us we have a lot of money, but we do not have that many good projects. And we would like to see like, clear determinations, not only uh, when it comes to Paris Agreement, which you like and support, uh, not only uh, in uh, support of the European legislation, which is very uh, forthcoming and it's, it's uh, very well drafted and prepared, but what is very important for us to see how each of the member states wants to do it on the ground. What kind of energy mix they want to have by 2030? How they are going to deal with the smart grid? How they are going to promote uh, uh, clean tech in uh, mobility or clean tech in in district uh, district heating? And then we are going to invest. We uh, are we are going to invest big, but we want to have that legal certainty. We want to be reassured that there will be not some kind of political reverses in uh, in, in taking up uh, the decision, as we have seen in the in the past. decade, and therefore I am calling up on the governments uh, to present the plans uh, as soon as possible, because I am deeply convinced those countries which will present uh, uh, their plans sooner will get, will get more investment and will get them faster. Now, this might be a bit of an annoying question,
2: but something that fills a lot of headlines these days is questions around Brexit. And the reason I ask you is that you sound like you have a really full agenda. So does something like Brexit impact on your work or where in the list of priorities is it for you?
4: I think we are quite, quite, quite busy and we already, I would say, moved on beyond that uh, super regrettable and uh, and uh, and sad experience with the, with the referendum. We are focusing on the future. Uh, we are making big plans on uh, how the Europe should work better, how it should be more operational. And uh, uh, we uh, are just looking at how the Michel Barnier is, is conducting the negotiations. So I, I, I wouldn't say that it's uh, the topic with, with which we are dealing every single day, every single minute, yeah. because we have a lot of other things to do and we accepted the fact that our friends are leaving us and we hope we will be able to find the best term for them, for us, how actually uh, you know, we will we live will after Brexit because we will be neighbors forever.
2: Mann Selmayr famously said Juncker wouldn't spend more than 30 minutes a week on
4: it. Are you are you more or less than Juncker <laughs> in the time scale? <laughs> I think it it, uh, it depends on the program, but I I would uh, probably that it, uh, at average it could be the same. But uh, I know that when we have a different meeting with, for example, uh, European Wind Association, Solar Association. And so E and so G, so we have very strong British participation, and this question always always uh, comes up because Brits are very much uh, interlinked with the European energy market. Mm-hmm. They have the cables, they have the interconnectors. Mm-hmm. They've been very active in different European associations, and 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 uh, uh, and I know that also on the continental Europe. Uh, they very much appreciated the close mm-hmm. cooperation with the British partners on, on, on the island. So it's always the question, you know, we want uh, uh, to have as close a relationship as possible and how this could be done. And my answer always, but please explain this to your government, because <laughs> they, have to, they have to present uh, the case, how they want to do it. I'm sure we would be the, uh, the, 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 the constructive uh, partner, but uh, I would say the big thing has happened, I mean, in the Brexit referendum, and we will need to find a way how to square the circles when there is uh, as it was restated again no single market no customs union no european court of justice so i mean indeed we will have to be very creative how to you know preserve uh, all that quality of uh, uh, relationship which was built in many many industrial sectors over the last uh, decades
2: excellent now what's coming up next for you is the next big thing the mobility package in november
4: I think so. It's, uh, we have, uh, I would say, two big things uh, to do uh, from, I would say, uh, our strategy on the energy uh, union. The first one coming most probably in November, where we want to propose new emission standards for, for cars uh, and vans. We want also to propose new rules for public procurement, uh, and uh, which would uh, create, I, I hope, better possibilities how to promote uh, the, the clean cars. And then we also want to do our utmost to to accelerate uh, the rollout of the infrastructure for alternative fuels. So the people would not have that range fear anymore that I have an electric car, can I really, you know, charge it, charge it when I, when I need. And And so uh, that would make a sort of standard or minimum work across the EU. Yes, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I would say what we definitely have to do, but I would like to push it a little bit uh, further because, and I hope that we can get uh, through this package. Uh, this very very clear European uh, ambition that we want to make sure that uh, the best cars in the world are manufactured in Europe that they will be the, the cleanest and so no the diesel gates and then and the normal diesel gates and we'll put them on the number one work class the infrastructure if it comes to the alternative uh, fuels different charging station, but also to propose certain vision uh, and declare our readiness to roll out the infrastructure also for the future autonomous driving. Mm-hmm. That's very much I would say so far on the table of the designers, engineers what it will be. 5G, uh, Galileo satellite navigation, Wi-Fi's in the city. But I I see that uh, we have progress on that a lot. In this case yeah. I would say uh, It almost makes you dizzy. I mean yeah, <laughs> the yeah. number of keywords you yeah. throw out. I yeah very hard to imagine how you structure that as one job. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, uh, f- and therefore, you know, because the, yesterday, I mean, uh, coming back to my, my Belgian uh, energy unit, uh, when we, when we visit these companies, they already see uh, the cars as a part uh, of, uh, uh, this new, uh, energy network, that you would have these uh, uh, solar panels uh, on the roof, you would have this home automation, smart appliances, and you would have an electric car with a strong battery which will, which will be your personal storage, which will store the energy for you and uh, which will also allow you to sell uh, the, the energy to the neighbors because uh, the machine will very quickly learn that you use it every day only for 12 or 20 kilometers. So that's, I think, really the future which is approaching very, very quickly. And for that, we need to create this new legislative uh, environment.
2: Well, Vice President Šefčovič, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Thanks for listening, everyone. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Of course, podcasting is a team effort. So I'm going to give my usual big shout out to Rosie Belson, Andrew Gray and Wei Dong